Well, hello everyone. It's January and back after the holidays. Welcome to the first Fireside Chat of 2017, Fireside Chat number 30. What a milestone. Great to uh, be reaching such a milestone. Um, but my word, it's cold. Uh, we're just on the tail end of winter storm Helena here. It's got down to around 12 degrees Fahrenheit, although we didn't get anywhere near as hard hit here in North Carolina as we thought we would. I know some of you were going to get up to 20 feet of snow. <laughs> yes, Betty, if you're watching, we are talking about you. Um, fortunately, if Justin has this edited and out on time, we are about to head off to warmer climes as we embark on Tom's Cultural Connection Tour. Uh, Sunday, 26th of February, Parnell, New Zealand. Saturday, the 4th and Sunday, 5th of March, Auckland, New Zealand. Saturday, the 11th and Sunday, the 12th of March, Sydney, Australia. Saturday, 25th of March, New Delhi, India. Sunday, 26th of March, Gurgaon, India. Saturday, the 1st and Sunday, the 2nd of April, Frankfurt, Germany. Saturday, the 8th and Sunday, the 9th of April, back here at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York. Now, listen, if you're going to be... Um, able to go to or near any of these or you can get to any of these places why not come along and see what all the fuss is about details can be found on the future events page of mbtevents.com or you can email me keith at mbt events right tom exciting times huh yes busy times too keith indeed um listen last month was interesting you did the uh, experiments with the youth chat uh, what did you think of that how did that go Oh, I thought that was uh, was very good. I think it went well. We had some very good, insightful questions from these uh, young folks. They obviously had been uh, doing their reading and listening and discussing, you know, beforehand because the questions were were good. It wasn't that far off from talking to a you know a bunch of adults on the normal fireside chat. It was. Uh, you know, a little thinner than that, but uh, not by much. I was impressed with these kids. Oh, they had some great questions, and especially um, Mike's beaming over there, uh, his son Alexander. He really gives some thought to his questions. Yes, he did. He did. He had some of the best questions of the group. He was uh, quite a little guy. Um, I did have a couple of questions from uh, Patricia that I had forgotten to pass on to you. Um, her son was only or is only five years old, so he wasn't able to take part, but uh, I forgot to pass them on. So with my apologies to Patricia, I think I'd like to start with those, if I may, Tom. Uh, Patricia writes as follows. Um, my son is just five years old, so I can't engage him in the fireside dynamics, at least not for that long. Um, the recording was the first thing that came to my mind, which is why I suggested I wanted to mention this to my son. Um, he's told me about flying while sleeping. Has um, had conversations with apparently no one in the room since he was two. These activities seem to have stopped when I went out of the country for a week or so. While his father was taking care of him, he reported that uh, Alec, my son, seemed a bit depressed as he and I are very connected. And without me there, it wasn't the same. Ever since, he's not mentioned any more of these experiences that he had previously, but he does ask interesting questions every now and then that I try to make the best response I can. Questions like, once humans are done on Earth, will they inhabit another planet? Or, what were we before being born? Naturally, as any other child his age, he enjoys dinosaurs and has also asked if we could go back in time to see them. So this is what I wish to share if you find pertinent to ask Tom. Perhaps this fireside chat is targeted youngsters a little older than my son, but I'm intrigued to know if there's an answer for him. Um, well, sure, we can. Uh, I can answer some of those questions. But first, uh, 
to uh, his parents all of the things that you're experiencing there, the, um, you know, the non-physical friends, the being aware of other uh, energy sources, um, talking about flying during his dreams and so on, all of those things are perfectly normal behavior for a five-year-old. When we come here, uh, we have for quite a while, you know, one, one foot in the physical world that we're trying to learn how to understand and deal and, you know, what things are here and how they work and how things are connected. We're, we're on a, a pretty steep learning curve trying to figure all out that out. And we have another foot still back in NPMR uh, with uh, kind of a, a more right brain general uh, contact or plug-in, if you will, with the larger reality. So the kids are living in, at that age, are living in both of those worlds. Out of body, uh, bouncing around at night, uh, flying around and doing things is just normal. Their consciousness and that part of their life is probably more familiar than the part where they're trying to figure out how this, this virtual reality works. So you'll get uh, blends of both of those uh, in children at that age. Somewhere in around seven years old, that tends to fade and go away. And by the time they're eight or nine, it's usually gone altogether. But at three and four and five and sometimes into six, that's very common among youngsters to be like that, to have those kinds of experiences. And, of course, they shouldn't be um, told that, uh, you know, that's ridiculous and they're being foolish and, no, that's not like that. And, no, you can't fly. And, no, there is nobody else in the room. And, that sort of stuff just squishes their their uh, uh, sense of you know what reality is like, and pretty soon their belief systems will grow up. So all of those things are turned off. They can't access those things, and then they turn to you know twenty or thirty, and they want to access those things, and now they have problems because they've already got this deep core level beliefs that uh, those things don't exist and they're foolish, and people make fun of you if you do that. So uh, I'm sure these parents, if they're here and they're, inter you know, they're interacting with us, then they are good parents as far as that goes, that you, you uh, just let them be. And you can ask some questions if you're curious, but pretty much that's a, that's a private life that your child is having and uh, kind of let them have it and don't discourage it would be my advice to the parents. Now, as far as those things, can you go back and see dinosaurs? Yes, that's part of the history database. You can go back and, and see dinosaurs, and uh, you can see them just as up close and personal as you like, um, like uh, you know, being in a in a movie, if you will. So that is available. It's um, part of the database. Because that's so old, what you'll get out of that database is not going to be highly specific to any particular thing that happened as it is going to be general information of a of um, you know what generally happened and the way things generally were and you will probably mostly see those things that will have some meaning or significance to you rather than just uh, like you know looking over out the airplane window and seeing you know Kansas as you go by it's not going to be quite like that it's more of you will attract that information that is significant to you and that you can get something from. So it's partly when you do that, 
It's partly outside of you, but partly you are modifying what you get by your own understandings and your own level of, of appreciation of that information. Um, let's see, what were some of the other things? So, you know, when he was saying, you know, you know, we're going to leave when we're done here, will we go to another planet? Well, I'd tell you that another planet is just a metaphor. Do we go someplace else? And the answer is yes, of course. When you leave here, your consciousness and you continue on. So that's uh, one of the neat things about this, that you do uh, go someplace else. And uh, that's one adventure after another. Always fun. No end to the fun. There's plenty of fun here. The other question he had was, where were we before being born? But obviously it was the last adventure, right? <laughs> yeah, it was the end of that last adventure. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, that uh, transition place, well, transition is a pretty big word for a five-year-old, but it's uh, that in-between place uh, where you get ready for the next one and uh, let go of the last one. And that's kind of where we are in, in between because we're consciousness. We're not, we're not uh, our bodies. We're something uh, more and uh, more expansive than just our physical selves. Well, I think uh, Patricia will be very happy to hear that uh, the activities of her son are, are pretty normal. That's good. And uh, hopefully her son will get something out of the answer, too. Moving on, Tom, um, MBTLA, the physics experiments. We were talking just before we came on the air today about what a fantastic job Justin has done with the editing. They look fantastic. They are just about all finished now. So um, kudos to him because it's, it's been brilliant. And uh, I know the feedback we're getting is is wonderful. So looking forward to seeing where they go this year but um, I have a question from someone we will we, I won't mention their name but we will be hanging out with them when we get to New Zealand and, and their question is this for those who do the experiments or thinking of doing the experiments will their intent for the outcome influence the results well yes anyone's intent intent toward anything they do influences the results somewhat but in the case of, of scientists influencing their experiments we have a, um, what can I say? We have a um, kind of a, a, a um, situation where the only things that you're going to influence are those things, or the only things that you're going to influence very much are those things that have a lot of uncertainty associated with them. Okay, That's the way intent modifies future probability, only in as much as that modification, you know, is likely to take place. So if there's something that's one to 10 million to going hap to happen and you change that from one to 10 million to one to 100,000, well, you've moved it a lot, but it's still not likely going to happen, you see. So in that case, there just wasn't that much uncertainty. That's why it's hard to, to change that. So that's what we're talking about. So in these experiments, these experiments are going to roll out according to the rule set. And if there's a part of the rule set where there's a lot of uncertainty, well, the rules could let this happen or that happen or something else happen, and they're all about the same probability, then, yes, the experimenters can uh, bias the results. That's why people in the soft sciences, like psychology and sociology, uh, when they do their experiments with people, they have a hard time, you know, reproducing their results 
because there's so much uncertainty with so many variables, and that's partly why there's so much uncertainty. You know, every individual they talk to is a, is unique, so that's a new set of variables. With all of that uncertainty, then it's rare, it's very hard just to reproduce that. Get another bunch of hundred people, ask them the same questions. You're gonna get another, you know, answers out of it that aren't gonna be like the last hundred people. So it's hard for them to say, oh. This is what people think, and this is why they think it, because there's so much uncertainty. Well, in science, dealing with the rule set, there's not that much uncertainty. How that rule set works and how the system is going to you know, produce and render this virtual reality has some uncertainty in it. There's always choices to be made, but the uncertainty is much smaller. So the, the uh, ability of scientists to greatly modify the result is very small. They're not going to modify it by very much. They'll get the way the rule set's set up to work. And their their uh, own attitudes toward it, their own biases are more likely to come into play by them making mistakes or doing shortcuts or not actually setting the experiment upright or you know doing something like that because they know well it couldn't work anyway so you know they don't have to be too careful or too specific and that sort of thing so rather than taking that extra hour to tune something just right they may kind of slide over it and not bother with that because well you know it's not going to work anyway so it may have some effect in that area, but not so much in their intent actually modifying the outcome. The second part of that question, Tom, from the same person is, um, for those who are more right-brained, will virtual reality actually be a turn-off term? Some people uh, do have a negative attitude toward virtual reality, and the negative attitude is directly proportional to the amount of fear um, that they have invested in this reality. And that is, they say, well, if it's only a virtual reality, then, you know, why give a damn? You know, it's not important. This is just a, it's a game we're playing. You know, I don't get uh, particularly wound up in my elf or, you know, my Sims character. You know, they fall off a cliff. Oh, well, you know, no sense getting excited about that. You know, or uh, you're in the Sims and you're children drown in the swimming pool. Oh, well, you know, get some new children. Uh, you don't take anything very seriously in those video games. So they think, well, if this is a virtual reality, then we shouldn't be taking it seriously. Well, that, that is just the wrong idea, you know, with uh, all capital letters for the word wrong. That's because in the video game, you're playing in order to get points or in order to go up levels or in order to learn how to play the game better. Here, this is your life. <laughs> this is your existence. You're learning to grow up, to evolve the quality of your consciousness and the quality of your life here. In other words, whether you're happy, satisfied, um, you know, full of joy, uh, feel good about everything, or whether you're miserable, unhappy, full of pain, dissatisfied uh, here, makes a difference between whether you're paying attention to this virtual reality and making good choices, you see? So in this one, if you goof off and don't learn and don't grow, you pay for it with pain and anguish and disappointment and aggravation 
and all of that stuff that's negative. And if you do pay attention and you do grow up and move toward becoming love, your life gets terrific and happy and, and great. So the idea of, oh, we don't have to pay attention, let's blow it off, that's about the worst possible reaction to finding out that this is a virtual reality that I could imagine. That's very foolish and uh, self-destructive. Uh, and the people who feel that way uh, are people who have a lot of fear. You know, they have beliefs about how virtual reality is from their game playing, and they have uh, ego about uh, what's important and what's not to them, and it's all about them. So that's how that typically plays out. So, yes, that's true. Some people will get that, but I don't think it's connected with right brain people. I don't see any reason why right brain people should feel any more that way than left brain people. Right brain, okay, they've got this whole big world that they live in because right brains live in larger realities. And to find out that's virtual, I think the, the feeling there should be, wow, that's neat. Because a virtual reality is, is one of the least constrained realities. It's the one where there's the most information, the most things to do, one of the most exciting and uh, rich um, foundations that you could possibly want for your reality. So that means it's going to be a lot richer, a lot deeper, a lot broader, and a lot more possibilities in there than you even could imagine. And I think for a right brain person, that's good news. Not bad news. Uh, let's let's hope they see it that way, Tom. I'm sure I'm sure they will. I, I really do. Uh, okay, TJ's got a question for you: consciousness and stacking. TJ, it's all yours. Sure. Um, so I was listening to a webinar yesterday about focusing your effort into things that are stackable. For instance, if you want to build a house, you would need to stack various levels of understanding about carpentry and concrete and plumbing and ele electricity and everything else. So the same concept would apply to us when we're trying to increase the quality of our consciousness and our intent, whether we want to stack things like um, knowing how to meditate and like various other things that help you quiet the mind. So what are a couple of these stackable pieces of understanding that you have now that maybe you wish you had when you were younger that might be worth the rest of us putting a little more effort into? Okay. Well, first of all, yeah, there's a, fairly long list of the things that you can stack to help you uh, evolve the quality of your consciousness. Most of them, though, are things, not so much things you do, but things you are. Uh, it's not something that if somebody tells you, you can just go do it. You know, it's not that kind of a thing. It's like you have to become it or be it, which makes it a lot harder to stack then. You know, if it's about plumbing and, and electricity and how to put up sheetrock and foundations and that sort of thing. Well, those are all facts you learn. And you can just get a book and sit down and learn those facts. Application is a little different than looking at a book, but still you can get all the basics and, and uh, to where the application comes pretty quickly because you understand how and why it works. Not quite so with uh, uh, improving the quality of your consciousness. You have to grow into these ways of being which makes it a little slower. You can't just use your intellect to get there. You can understand them with your intellect. That may make you a little more aware and make it a little, a little easier to grab hold of them, but not really that much. I think one of the first things that I learned as I 
going back now in my own evolution through um, getting uh, my own consciousness uh, kind of focused and doing what it is I wanted it to do and not jumping all over the place. I think one of the first things was to not try to push it, not try to control it. See, we left brainers want to control everything. We want uh, everything, you know, oh, here's, here's where I want to go. Now I want to, you know, make it go there. That kind of a control gets in the way. Um, so one of the first things was just to get out of the way and let it happen as it happened. Well, that means you can't be big on setting goals. Oh, in three weeks, I'm going to be able to do this, you see, or, you know, in six months, I'm going to go out of body. If you start setting goals, you just set yourself up for frustration. That's good when you're building a house. Set yourself goals. Oh, by next week, I'm going to learn all about wiring. And then the week after that, I'm going to learn about plumbing. But it doesn't work that way here so much. So you start if you start off, you're one of your first sets of problems is going to be you're too anxious. You want to get there. You want to get to the end. You're kind of goal-focused. So uh, particularly if you're trying to do things like, uh, you know, heal people or, or experience, you know, non-physical uh, uh, realities, that sort of thing. If you're very specific in your goal focus, that gets in your way. So number one, just work on it. It's a life's work. Just start and be serious about it, which means you practice, you know, an hour a day or a half hour a day, or two or three hours a day, depending on the time you have and, and where you are, you know, but you stay balanced. You don't practice 16 hours a day. That becomes the, you know, that gets you out of balance with what you're here to do, which is experience and make choices. So um, you, you work at it seriously, which means steadily. And you try to say in the beginning, just get acquainted with your consciousness. What is my consciousness? Uh, that's the first thing. Get familiar with your own consciousness and then try to get rid of the noise. So it's not about forcing yourself to stay empty as it is about just letting the noise go. The next thing is you have to learn to be always open about whatever happens, happens. Be a scientist in the sense that you are you are detached from whatever happens. It's just you're doing an experiment, and it could turn out all sorts of different ways. You don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but any of those ways are okay with you, you know, because that's what the experiment is, to see how things turn out, what happens when you do certain things. So just be open-minded. Don't have a belief that it's supposed to be this way. I'm supposed to feel that way. I need to you know, be able to make these milestones, that's a problem. Just forget about the milestones. Just keep working on your consciousness, uh, getting rid of the noise, you know, existing in point consciousness, those kinds of things, just small steps. And don't move on to the next step until you pretty well got the last step kind of under control to where you feel like you're pretty strong and steady in that. So it's just a slow process of exploring being open, accepting whatever happens, not trying to force it, being aware of what is happening. A lot of people don't realize, but they have a lot of things happen, and they blow them all off and aren't aware of it. So that's your next point is that when you are 
exploring or trying to uh, interact with non-physical uh, entities, that sort of thing. Just let it be. Don't try to make something more of it than what you just got from that data. Don't question it. Don't judge it. Just play with it. Experiment with it. Be open to it. And then six months later, after you've got you know 30 hours logged in that particular thing, now you do have to judge it. And your judgment shouldn't be, is it real? Your judgment should be, is it useful? I've spent 30 hours with it. What have I learned? Where am I now that I wasn't before? If it's not useful, end it. Go someplace else. Do something else. That's the more important thing. But in the beginning, don't uh, try to pigeonhole everything and, and uh, even try to explain or, you know, what is that? Why is that? Why did they say that to me? You know, what am I supposed to do with this? Just take in what you can take in. Let it stay in your mind. Get out of it what you can get out of it and then go on to the next day and see what happens. You see? So it's this attitude of being very interested, of being very serious, but at the same time being detached from the result. That will optimize your results. The less detached you are from the result, the fewer your results will be. So that's kind of a major, a major thing to uh, to get over. And it will just naturally grow. You'll change. What um, you understand about reality will change, but it's slow. It's not fast. A few times I've had big aha moments where you know discoveries kind of kind of leap out at you and then you make a big step all at once. But those are very few and far between. Mostly it's just you changing over a fair amount of time, you know, over months, over years, you just changing, becoming a different person who lives in a larger reality, you know, just little by little by little. And you notice the difference when you look back, look back and say, who was I 10 years ago? Who am I now? Wow, look at the difference. You see, that's how you realize that you're growing up. You really see the difference. But as you're growing up, nobody notices that they're growing up, you know, from day to day or week to week or even much from year to year. You don't notice it a whole lot. But when you look back, you see that it's been steady, steady growth. So just keep at it. And uh, it isn't something to do. It's something to be and changing who you are, changing who you know, who the be who that being is, is just a slow cumulative process that uh, works a whole lot better if you're not always poking at it and uh, trying to put it under a microscope. Just let it alone. And you know, if you think about your children, it's the same with them growing up, right? As they grow up, it's, it's, uh, it's, they don't grow up from a, a series of big aha moments. They, they grow up just a little infinitesimal bit every day that's very unnoticeable. And when they're 10 and they look back and see when they were five, it's like day and night. Wow, I'm a totally different person here. You say, well, it's the same way. That's the nature of growing up as opposed to the nature of doing something intellectual. So realize that it's just that way. You're growing up and it's slow. And don't push yourself and feel kind of defeated or down that you're not making the progress you want to make there. The problem is that you have this progress that you want to make. That's what's getting in the way of you making that progress. 
I, I know that sounds a little like, you know, one of these Zen things, you know, about the, the one hand clapping, but it's, it's like that you, uh, your, your drive to make progress is often the thing that keeps you from making progress. But you say, well, without drive, I wouldn't make any progress. Well, that's not true. You have to have drive to be consistent and keep after it. And, and every day, you know, work toward it. But you don't want to drive toward goals or accomplishments or any specific things um, that uh, are more to satisfy your ego than they are anything else. So I guess those are kind of the the the, the stackables, if you will, in this uh, consciousness evolutionary process that most people have a hard time stacking because they want to stack it with their intellect rather than stack it with their you know being level. And stacking things with a being level is just a real difficult thing to do. That just happens by itself, almost by osmosis when you're ready. So it's hard to stack these things. Uh, Tom, you know, we started with the kids and really I should have gone to TJ's other question next because uh, it is kid related. Um, it's funny you should mention his children there. Um, it's a charming question, but it is really intriguing. So uh, TJ, back to you. Sure. Um, so my kids are still pretty young, but they're already asking pretty heavy existential questions about things that I never really thought of as being so heavy before. For example, we're talking about Peter Pan and whether or not it was a real story. So, of course, we want to say it's not. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that although it isn't typical and it's not talked about much, it's probably not all that uncommon for lonely but very bright children to explore the LCS with their their non-physical friends, maybe even with their siblings or some regular friends at times. From their point of view, they could be gone for long spans of time, but they wouldn't get older, just like the kids in Neverland, because time would just be passing like in a dream. So fairy tales and other kid movies pretty much all sound a lot to me like tongue-in-cheek stories about experiences in the larger system. And I'm trying yep. to teach my kid. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I just had one more little part of it. Um, I'm trying to teach my kids that it doesn't really matter if the story was real or not, but that we can learn things from the, the things that happen in the story. So what do you think was a good way to get it across to our kids that we really don't need to believe or disbelieve in these kind of things, but rather just consider the possibilities and see how we could kind of kind of grow up a little bit from it, I guess. Well, I think your observation is correct that many of our stories are metaphors for our experience. Um, that's true probably throughout literature. Most of our stories are metaphors for our experience. So, yes, kids will have experience uh, in the non-physical, and then they have stories about flying and doing other such things. Um, that's probably true. Most of our literature uh, has to reflect human experience, or nobody would really care to read it. See, so nobody would get excited about it. It wouldn't draw people in. If it really wasn't about, you know, metaphors for our own experience, then people wouldn't get drawn into it. It'd just be something that you'd look at and turn off the, you know, turn off the movie. It, uh, you wouldn't connect to it. So we connect to them because it is metaphors for our experience. The other thing, the main thing here, though, would be to talk to your kids about the word reality, real. Is it real? 
they might ask you, well, what does the word real mean? Now, this could be pretty um, esoteric conversation, but you can get it down to something that kids can understand. It's real to you. If it's real to you, if it's part of your experience, then that's real. Okay, And if it's real to several people, like your house or your car or, you know, the trees outside, then it's a shared reality. But there are shared realities and there are personal realities. Now, I'm not necessarily using kid language because I'm not talking to a child. I'm talking to you. But you got the concepts. You're going to have to translate them more into the language that your children can, can work with. So you talk about that, that your reality, everybody's reality is unique to them. There is not a reality that is real, that doesn't exist. There are only individual realities. Some of that is shared in a shared space because it's a multiplayer game. Uh, and as soon as they start playing video games, they'll get that, uh, that kind of a metaphor. Maybe they're not quite ready for that yet, but uh, they will soon. And some of it is not a shared game. It's not a multiplayer game. It's your own perceptions. It's your own interpretations based on your own experience. And that is also your reality. And once you get to that point, they will have this idea, well, then I don't know that anything's real, right? That means there's really nothing that's absolutely real. Everything's kind of relative to me and my perception that's real. And you'd say, yes, that's true. And they would wonder, well, then how can I deal with that? I'm living in a phantom world now where nothing's real. That kind of upsets them. And the way to deal with that is with open-minded skepticism. Everything is something that you, is all data that you receive. It's all information. The stuff we call real is information. The stuff we call imagination is information. You know, the stuff we call communication is information. It's all just information that we get and we process. And then we sort it into different baskets. Oh, this is the real basket and this is the imaginary basket. But fundamentally, there isn't any difference in it. It's all the same. It's just information. It comes from different sources, but the source doesn't make it more or less real. It's the value of it. Again, it's the value that's important, not the source. The question, is it real, isn't all that important compared to what do I get out of it? How does it make me feel? What am I doing with it? How am I processing that? If Peter Pan makes you happy because it's a young boy that flies and never gets old, and you'd like to do that, well, then there's value in that. It's, a, it's an upper. It's a good thing, you see. If that upsets you because he can do that and you can't, and that makes you angry, well, then it's not a good thing. It's something you probably shouldn't watch because you're not able to process that information successfully, you see. So it depends on the individual child. What's you know, what is useful information for them to work with and process. And every child isn't the same. So you can empower them in as much as their perceptions are what's real to them. But they need to always stay open-minded and skeptical. Is this, real, is this real just to me and not anybody else? Or is this real to a lot of people? Or is something similar to it? You know, 
real to, uh, to a lot of people. We share things like cultural things. You know, that's is not exactly the same in other people, but it's similar. And what are the kind of things that I need to use that are profitable for me, like being polite, like caring about other people? You know, these are things that are kind of core concepts in your reality that are important. You see, so you can kind of work at it from that angle of questioning them on, you know, what is real? You make up real. Some of it's shared, some of it isn't. And you have to be open-minded about which is which and skeptical about which is which. And then you just go through life doing the best you can. But what's real or not is not really the right question. It's, you know, what do you get out of it? What does it mean to you? And if Peter Pan is a, it kind of means freedom to them, means excitement, means adventure, well, that's probably a good thing. If it's frustrating and silly and, you know, it's not, you know, the world doesn't work like that, stupid, well, then it's not such a good thing. So it depends on how you process it and what you get out of it, whether it's good material to watch or whether it's not good material to watch. So that's about the best I can tell you. Now, how you're going to communicate all that to uh, your children? I don't know how old your children are, but uh, hopefully, if they play video games, much of that will be easy. If they don't, that's going to be a lot tougher. But uh, you can take some of the sting out of it because they want to know. Because they say, "Well, if it's not real, then I would be foolish to think that it was," and they don't want to feel foolish. So that's really what they're asking you, and the real answer to that is don't feel foolish don't feel foolish either way it's what you get out of it if you get something out of it then it's not foolish now you have to be aware such that if all your friends think it's foolish and you don't they'll make fun of you well sometimes you have to keep some of the things you like to yourself and that's part of their growing up and maturing that they'll have to learn how to deal with that and that social interaction and those sorts of things. But that's really the question they're asking you when they want to know, is it real? Is how should they approach it? Should they approach it with disdain or, or with it's, it's not much because it's not real? Or should they embrace it and, you know, think, believe in it and think it's real? Well, we don't want to encourage them to believe in anything or disbelieve in anything. What do you, what do you get out of it? What's it mean to you? How do you feel about it? And if all that's positive, it's good. And that's a much more important way to look at it than tell me, should I believe it or not? See, that's not a good position to take. But that's what most of your children are doing because they've learned that certain things you believe, and that's good because everybody else believes them. And certain things you don't believe because nobody else believes them. And it doesn't have anything to do with the validity of those things. It has to do with conforming to what your culture believes or disbelieves. And that's a trap. So if you can get those words across to your kids, they'll probably feel more empowered and open about that. They don't have to worry about getting it wrong and, you know, enjoying something that maybe they wouldn't otherwise if you told them, well, that's just fake nonsense. You know, it's, it's, it's whatever it is it means to you is what it is. And if that's good, then enjoy it. Don't ask whether you should believe it or not. You shouldn't believe anything. <laughs> but you also should not 
believe, you know, anything. It's the belief or not believing is all in the same bag. Just let it go. It is. Interact with it. If it's good for you, enjoy it. That's the, that's what I would try to get across to them. Thanks, Tom. Okay. From the West Coast, we're heading down to Australia. Good morning, Mike. The floor is all yours, mate. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate it, mate. Uh, Tom, why is the fundamental process an assumption in my big toe when the effects of the process itself are so obvious in existence wherever we look? Is it an assumption because the essence or force behind the process is outside the larger consciousness system? Well, it's a process mainly because if you're a scientist, you have to start somewhere. And you always have to start with some assumptions because you don't know everything. If you knew everything, you wouldn't have to have any assumptions. But because there are some things you can't know because they're just outside your ability to know, then you need to start with some assumptions. Now, that assumption of of, uh, consciousness exists, uh, that assumption that uh, evolution exists, those are about as... I don't know. Those are about as reasonable an assumption as anybody could ever make. You know, they're obvious, as you say. They're perfectly obvious that there is a process by which systems that can change do change in order to benefit themselves, be it the, an ecosystem. You know, if, if, the, if the land is eroding, then a good change is it starts growing things to hold the soil. You know, it starts growing grass. That's a positive thing. So if that starts helping the soil get better, then more grass grows. Then the soil's better, then even more grass grows, and it's an evolutionary thing. So things, you know, just happen because it works, and things that don't work go away. Now, that's such an obvious idea to all of us. Uh, I see what you're asking is, why call that an assumption? Why not just call it a fact? You know, it's just the way life is. You know, the things that work tend to go on, and the things that don't work, tend to fall by the wayside. But it's an, uh, it's an assumption in the strict sense that that is the beginning point. And somebody could ask the question, well, why is it that way? Why is it that when, you know, something benefits the system or something works, then it tends to continue? And when it doesn't work, it doesn't. Well, that we, we think that's all reasonable, but why does it have to work that way? Why can't you have a system that when things don't work, you know, they stay around? Well, it's obvious, right? The system doesn't stay around and stuff and it doesn't work. The system itself disappears is is the answer for that. So it's self-evident that that's a good assumption. But I call it an assumption just because in science, you call wherever it is you start, you're going in an assumption. Now, if you're going in assumption is something that's kind of, of uh, you know hand waving that isn't self evident now you're in trouble because people will fault you that everything you've built is based on a on an assumption that isn't very strong but if your assumptions are really really self evident very strong then what you build based on those assumptions is also logically very strong if your if your building is a logical building so that's why it's more of a um nomenclature just naming consciousness and uh and evolution as assumptions 
it's good to have a very rock solid, uh, obvious to the most casual observer, you know, kind of uh, assumption underlying your theory. That's kind of the best assumptions you can possibly have, given that every theory has to start with assumptions because we don't know everything. We start with here, here, here is where we're going to start. And from these things, we will build. That's really what I'm calling assumptions. Yeah, I don't mean that, that by calling it an assumption that it's kind of way out and we all have to just believe it. It's, it's just a starting point that is, for, for me, for these two, is just self-evident that they're good, solid assumptions.